Well, it's so good to see every one of your faces and your names, those of you who don't have your videos on. It's all good. It's not fair that you can look at me, but I can't look at you. Um, I, don't, I, I didn't come in my pajamas, so I hope you're not in yours. I'm teasing. But um, it might look like it. The shirt kind of looks a little bit like pajamas, but anyway. So good to see you guys. Um, awesome to see your faces and longing, aching for you uh, to be in person in the room with us and really trusting for the Lord to make a way for us to be together in person. Um, but I'm so grateful and so uh, just overwhelmed that uh, we still get to have times like this where I can actually see you even though you're not in the room. Uh, I can see you and your bedrooms and get a glimpse into maybe your home life. Uh, <laughs> you know, the people running behind you. No, I'm teasing. Um, but it's awesome to, to have these opportunities. And I, I remind myself over and over again um, that this is a privilege that we can actually afford to have internet and Zoom, and all the things that we need in order to have a service like this together. There's many places uh, across the earth, even within our own nation, where this isn't possible. And so I just keep reminding myself to be grateful uh, that we get to do this. So, um, you know, Zoom fatigue is a silly concept when you start to get grateful for what we have. Um, and so we get grateful, and then we get excited again. So if you're feeling a little bit fatigued, just start thanking the Lord that you're actually looking into some sort of device that you could afford to have a service this morning. So yay, Jesus. Thank you for your word. And I'm excited this morning um, to get into the word together. I have two kind of directions on my heart, but I'm going to do my best to marry them into one. Um, and my prayer is that you would come away uh, provoked, excited, inspired, uh, set on fire for what the Lord is doing in this hour and in this moment, um, and also just to get excited about the bigness of the dream of God. Um, as I was just praying for this morning and praying for you and praying for just something that the Lord would, would give me to release, um, you know, sometimes you process things and there's so many things on your heart, but I really was seeking the Lord to give me something that's for us as a family um, and I want you to know that any time I have the privilege of sharing the word from the pulpit, which is such a, a great privilege in this house, um, I always want to share something that, that took root in my heart first uh, before I expect it to take root in yours. Um, and that's not because, you know, a preacher has to get everything right before he can preach a message. But I do believe that it's, it's important for those who are communicating and preaching the Word to have revelation in their heart and to be allowing this Word and this message to be transforming our own hearts so that when we communicate it, it's actually coming from a place of humility and coming from a place of transformation where the Word is actively already transforming hearts. Um, and so my desire is to, to share something with you today that is uh, continually challenging and provoking my own heart. And, uh, and I feel the Holy Spirit reminding me day after day after day and challenging me. And I, I want to say to 24-7, you know, I always say if you've known me longer than five minutes, you know that maybe my personality and my package is a little bit intense. And, uh, and I've learned to be okay with that. And so I want you to know I, I'm... I'm challenging you today because I'm challenged. And, and uh, so together, let's be challenged by the Word. Let's be encouraged by the Word. Let's be stirred by the Word. And the point of being challenged, the point of conviction, is actually to push you into what God's called you to, to, to draw you, to woo you into the more, not to offend you so that you step back. And so I, I hope the Word, as we hear the Word today, I hope that it, um, it really does invite you to the more. Um, so I'm going to do my best to marry a few scriptures up uh, this morning. Uh, let's see what the Lord is going to do. If you've got your Bibles, which I hope you have, um, turn to Genesis chapter 28. This is actually something that an incredible man of God, uh, 
spoke about recently, and it just provoked a thought in my heart, which I want to tie in to what I'm going to share today. Um, and uh, at first, it might seem a little bit um, prophetic and, and a bit out there, but if you lean into this word, if you lean into what I'm saying, it'll start to make sense. Okay, this is uh, Genesis chapter 28. We're going to read from verse 10. And this is where Jacob has the dream. I don't know how many of you uh, know this story, but he has this dream uh, while he's kind of off on this mission. He's walking off on his, on his own. And uh, so let's, let's just read this, and then I want to pull out a few things that will set us up for what we're going to jump into this morning. Everyone good? If you're on Zoom, give me a, a thumbs up. If you're on YouTube, nice to see you. <laughs> All right, I can't see you, but anyway. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards uh, Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night uh, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on, on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you uh, and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's a great word. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means the house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at first, which actually means separation. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and, I will, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Okay, I want to just pull out a few things here. Number one, Jacob has this, this encounter. He, he gets to this place, he's tired, he takes a stone, he puts a stone down, and he lays his head on a stone, and he falls asleep and he has a dream. And in this dream, there's this ladder, and it's, it's touching the earth, and it's reaching towards heaven. And, and on this ladder are angels that are ascending and descending up and down. And at the top of this and around this, you see the Father, you see the Lord, and he speaks to, uh, to Jacob, and, he, he, and the voice of the Lord is heard in his dream and in this encounter. And when he wakes up, he's aware of the fact that God is in this place. And I didn't even realize that I came here and I put the stone out to lay my head. God's here. And so he, he, the Lord gives him this promise that basically I'm going to go with you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless the nations through you. It's this incredible promise. But he says something so interesting in verse 17. He says, and he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. I don't know about you, but a stone on the ground doesn't really strike me as a house <laughs> or even a gate. So he, he's looking at this stone that he laid his head on where he had this encounter, 
And he's saying, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate to heaven. In John chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, you see uh, Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. And when he calls uh, Nathanael, as Nathanael's walking up to him, he says, here's a man with no deceit, no guile, no duplicity, uh, true Israelite. And anyway, long story short, Nathanael says, you're the, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you know, he had said to Nathanael, I saw you under the fig tree before you were here. And it's just beautiful. I'd encourage you to go read it. But Jesus says something interesting to Nathanael. He says, do you believe because I saw you under the fig tree? I tell you, you'll see greater things than this. And then he says, you shall see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And that's with reference to Genesis 28. So I want to, I want to pull something out here. In, in Genesis 28, we're seeing a prophetic picture that Jacob taps into where the father is revealing his master plan once again. And I, I always say this, if I had the time, I'd take you through the whole Bible and I'd show you the common thread of God's master plan and the dream of God, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So here in Genesis 28, we see Revelations, the book of Revelation, unpacked. We see the fulfillment of Jesus coming to the earth, paying a price for something that's not just him, but actually a whole group of people that will become an eternal dwelling place for God. And so Jacob doesn't really know what he's doing. All that he knows is that what I just felt in this moment, what I've just encountered, this is the dwelling place of God. This is the house of God. This is what it feels like for God to dwell with man. That's what he's encountering. He's, he's catching a glimpse. He's catching a taste. And what he's seeing is ministering angels ascending and descending upon this, this place, co-laboring and partnering to bring heaven to earth. Here's what grabs me. Jake, Jacob's response is he wakes up and he takes the rock that he was resting his head on. And he makes that the pillar, the, the altar, the monument. And he calls this Bethel, God's house, the house of the Lord. And he renames a place which was once called Luz, which means separation. And he names it house of God, dwelling place of God. I could unpack so much there, but I'll leave you to, to explore that one because I do need to, to move forward. Jesus is the rock the revelation of Jesus is the rock that he's building his church on. In Matthew 16, he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the son of the living God. And he says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven. And then he says to Peter, he says, you are Peter, Petros, little stone. But he says, on this rock, Petra, this revelation of what you've just understood, the son of man, the son of the living God, on that revelation, on that rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jacob had rested on a rock, had an encounter with what the master plan of the Father was. Jesus is the cornerstone, the rock, in which we are built upon as the church. If we will learn to rest on the rock, we will live in the dwelling place of God, the house of God, where angels will ascend and descend and collaborate with man to see heaven invade earth, where the voice of the Lord God will be so loud and evident in the church, and we will no longer be separate from God. We will now be the house of God. And I just want to throw something out there. We're also the gateway to heaven. I want to suggest and present something to you. I know in the last little while we have preached the invasion of heaven on the earth. 
And I, I agree with that, and I'm, I'm, I'm not taking away from that. It's a beautiful message. But sometimes we've overemphasized that, and we forget that we're also the gateway from earth to heaven. And so we get so obsessed with trying to fix something on the earth because we're looking through one lens of trying to take the answers from heaven and bring them to the earth. Nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful. But what actually counts even more so than that is making sure that there are those on the earth who don't know the heart of God, who are beginning to see heaven through the church and are coming into an eternal purpose and an eternal reality. We're called to be a gateway to the earth, right? Something so beautiful, though, is that you know, Jacob prays this prayer, Lord, if you'll go with me, if you'll provide for me, if you'll clothe me, uh, if you'll bring me back to this promised land, um, then you will be my God. Now, listen to this. All Jacob's doing is he's repeating the promise that God already gave him. So Jacob isn't saying, he's actually not saying, God, if you will do these things, he's actually just holding God to his word. And he's saying, okay, Lord, you've given me this promise. If that's true, if that's the reality, then you're my God. So he, he's taking this promise, and then listen to the response. He says, And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. I want to just encourage you. This is another, I mean, this is Jacob. It's happened with Abraham. We've seen it. This is another example now where this is before the law of Moses. We haven't seen all of these things expressed. And here's a heart response of promise. I'm not preaching on this, but I'll throw it out. What if tithing is a heart response to promise? What if those who know how to rest on the rock of who Jesus is access the dwelling place of God, live in that realm of His voice and partnership with heaven and earth where the promise of God is heard and received and the heart response to hearing the promise is to tithe. Tithe means 10% doesn't mean anything else. Okay, so now you take this and you go, wow, this is incredible. And I, I, want, to, I want to encourage you. I feel like at this moment, um, the Lord's been speaking to me about focus. There's so much going on around us. There's so much noise, so many opinions. I want to encourage you. I don't think there's ever been a time with so much shaking. Shaking around you, shaking within you, shaking in your households, shaking in your workplace, just shaking, shaking, shaking. Everything that can be shaken is being shaken right now. There is nothing that we've looked around and seen and gone, oh, that, that actually looks okay. Everything looks like it's coming crashing down. And the problem is we as the church are so often shaken by that as well. And we're going, oh my goodness, this doesn't make any sense. And I thought the kingdom was meant to give us a better day. And so the reality is now we're thinking about kingdom and we're getting intimidated because things are shaking and falling and we're going, how does the kingdom work? I'm not seeing the kingdom. I've even seen Christians making statements and I understand the sincerity of our hearts, but it's like, you know, it's not the kingdom of God for these things to happen. And I just go, I'm sorry, when did we become the king? Now, I believe that we have a good king, a good father. He's got a beautiful heart. His kingdom is good. It's full of righteousness and justice and mercy and compassion. And so I'm not saying that the shaking around us is the kingdom of God, but I am saying that his kingdom is not of this world. And so if we understand that we are living for something that's eternal, then we've got to make sure our hearts are not captivated by this world around us. And the problem is the church has fallen in love with this world. And because we've fallen in love with this world, we are running to the bridegroom demanding a response to fix something that we've chosen to love more than him. 
And so now we've rallied together for prayer meetings because the things that we've fallen in love with are being shaken. Instead of being a people that are so devoted, so taken by the Lamb, that everything around us gets shaken and we begin to shine and radiate the light of His kingdom and suddenly everything's falling away, but the bride of Christ is arising out of the ashes and the world is looking at the church and going, oh my word, there is one who's worthy and He's seated on the, on the throne. There is only one. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. But instead... What's happening at the moment is the church decides there's crisis on the earth. Let's become the latest and most hip charity. Everyone else is doing something. We should do something. What are they going to think when they look at the church and we aren't meeting the needs like other people are, like the world is? Come on, we've got to be better than the world. And I'm not saying that acts of kindness and generosity and and, and I love that we feed the poor, we take care of the orphans and the widows. That's, it's an expression of who we are. But guess where it comes from? It comes from a people who have seen and who behold. It comes from a people who are in love with the bridegroom and have actually renounced the world. The biggest weakness in the church today, and I'm saying this out of conviction in my own heart because I'm challenged by this word. The biggest weakness in the church today is that we want to love Jesus without renouncing the world. And so we are continually living in the tension of trying to love Jesus with all our hearts, with sincerity, but we have not renounced the world. We have not rejected the things of this life. And so it's easy to preach a message, to hear a message, to write songs about it, sing songs about death to myself, alive to Christ, but we forget what that means is to be only alive to the touch of our bridegroom. You know, I've been studying in, uh, in Revelations, uh, Revelation. Uh, I, I'm really taken by what Jesus says and, and how he ministers to the seven churches. And I preached a couple of weeks ago out of the letter to the church in Laodicea. And today I want to just pull a few things out of his letter to the church in Thyatira, or Thyatira, however you say it. You know, I want to just encourage you, these letters that are written to the seven churches in Revelations um, 2 and 3, they're all in red. The, le- the words are all in red in my Bible, which means Jesus is saying them. So when you read these letters, it's not, none of this is a suggestion, none of this is a you know, debate or conversation or an opinion. This is, this is the words of the bridegroom king to his end time church. So the more I read these letters, the more I'm realizing we need to pay attention. So I've been studying the letter to Thyatira, and it's quite an intense letter. And I want to say most people who read this one, what they pull out is the main theme there, and it's sexual immorality. And so it's Jezebel and sexual immorality, and they hit that one really hard. And I'm not taking away from it. It's it's legit, and it's a valid point. But I just want to come from a different angle. Let me give you some, some context about Thyatira. Thyatira is actually the smallest of all seven of these uh, cities. It's the smallest, and yet it's actually quite a, 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 a prosperous little town or little city um, because they, in Thyatira there was a, a way in which they made these purple goods. They, there was a way that they could dye. They used, I think it's um, something from shellfish or something like that that they used, and it was very rare, and you couldn't get this color of purple and this dye anywhere else other than in Thyatira. Now, if you know, uh, if, if you read with, with Paul, I think it's Lydia, 
Uh, she, Lydia was, she actually was, was bringing in purple goods from Thyatira and actually selling them uh, in other places. So, and she actually was making quite a, a good living from that. So this is a really valuable product that only comes from Thyatira. Uh, and so uh, it made it quite a unique place. But it's the smallest of all seven. And uh, as I was researching and, and, and listening to a few things and, and studying this place, I, I found out some stuff that really challenged my heart. In, in Thyatira and in a lot of the cities of that day, when this letter was written, in order to, to uh, be involved in trade, to have a business to do, to sell and buy, uh, or to have a business in that, that town or that city, there were guilds that you'd have to be a part of. And a trade guilds. And the way that you would join these guilds in order to have a business is you would have to attend these dinners, these kind of secretive dinners where you'd be invited if you were part of that trade and each trade kind of had their own dinner. And you would, in order to register your business, you would have to attend this dinner and the, the start of this dinner would be to offer sacrifices to pagan gods. Now you've got to understand the culture of this day. I mean, it was rife with idolatry and gods and all these different things. And we go, yeah, you know, sure, what a terrible time. Society today is full of gods and idols and idolatry. And the only difference is that Satan understands that you're no longer going to bow to a statue because maybe, you know, we've learned a little bit from the past, but now you'll bow to pieces of paper in your pocket. And so we see here, <laughs> I'm smiling. I'm smiling. You want to smile with me? It's all good. You, you can laugh at that one. Um, so in order to, to register your business, you'd have to go to these trade dinners, these guilds, and you'd have to join this, that group in order to register, and you'd have to offer these sacrifices to pagan gods. Then you would sit down and you would strategize, and everyone would kind of discuss the trade and how things were going to happen and where you were allowed to sell and who, got, you know, who gets what location in the marketplace, all this kind of stuff. And then I know this is really graphic, and so I apologize. I'll try and say it in a very nice, polite way. But basically, these dinners would end in orgies, and you would have to, you'd have to complete this whole night of basically joining this group in order to, to have your business. You can look this up, 100% fact. This is history. So the Christians found themselves in a difficult position. And in Thyatira, one of the, the biggest struggles for the church was how are we meant to make a living? Because if we want to sell our goods, if we want to register our businesses, we have to partake in something that is totally against everything that we've become in Christ. And so what happened was when you study this time, there was actually part of the church, some Christians who just, you know, participated in these nights to just try to not tell anybody and just go under the radar just so that they could trade. The problem is once you started trading, then people knew you, you in order for you to do that and get permission, you must have engaged in this night. And so there, it was causing turmoil and, and, and it was difficult in the church. And so suddenly the church is facing the reality of, of struggle, financial struggle, and they had to take care of each other because they would not bow. I don't know if, if you're catching the picture of how intense it was to be the church in this moment. One of the, the fathers of the faith, Tertullian, a couple years later, he was actually in Thyatira and he came to preach uh, the gospel there. 
And, um, and he, he, he preached a message to the church in Thyatira. And he, he said to them, you need to set yourself apart from these guilds, from these trade guilds. You cannot participate in these things. This is totally the world, totally uh, anti what we're about. You need to set yourself apart and live unto the Lord. And so the church came to him and they said, if we don't make a living, we're going to die. How are we, how are we meant to, to, uh, to make a living? We must make a living, otherwise we're going to die. And Tertullian said this, must you? Now, when I study this, and I'm reading this, and I see this quote, and Tertullian's response to the church is, must you? We must make a living, otherwise we're going to die. Oh, must you? See, I... Maybe some of you are sitting there going, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, what grabs me about this is that all the way since these times, in order to be the church, it cost everything. And it has been a continuous journey for the church, the tension between falling in love with this world, being dependent on this world, and falling in love with the bridegroom and being dependent on him. And the church is still standing 2,000 years later, I think we need to come to the place where we understand that Jesus is building His church, which means He's going to take care of His church. He loves His church. He'll provide for His church. But He's coming back for a bride that He's prepared for His glory. And so we cannot be a people that will uh, dilute who we are, what we believe, and what we're about in order to live and survive in this world. And I, I think something like this is going to become more and more important to us to preach and to communicate to the church as we get closer and closer to the end of this age. Because I think it's going to, it's going to be difficult. It's going to come to a place where it's difficult to do things like the world does it and to be pure in our devotion to the Lord. You know, in, in this letter... Um, he actually talks about Jezebel and, uh, and that she's seducing his servants. And we know that it has to do, uh, you know, partly to do with these guilds. And it's also to do with the spirit of Jezebel that's, you know, deceiving and seducing, uh, you know, the, the, some of the believers. But I want to just point this out to you. You know, if you study the spirit of Jezebel, it's been taught in so many different ways. And, and you know, a lot of it has to do with sexual immorality. And I understand. It's a, it's a valid point. But if you study Jezebel even in the Bible... Uh, what she did was she tried to destroy the prophetic vision of a nation through the corruption of intimacy. That's what Jezebel does. So the spirit of Jezebel corrupts the understanding of intimacy. And that's why the expression, you know, intimacy is, is it's connected to sexuality and those things because sexuality and, and, and all of those things, I don't want to you know, get into detail, but all those things are an expression of intimacy. But intimacy is a heart matter. And so the spirit of Jezebel corrupts the understanding of intimacy in order to destroy or suffocate the prophetic vision of a nation or a people. And so, you know, when we talk about Jezebel, people get afraid because Jezebel, you know, someone's going to come and seduce me and I'm just going to watch out for all these Jezebels. You know, all the Jezebels on TV and the Jezebels on every, all this kind of stuff. Come on. But, but understand this, the spirit of Jezebel is actually, it operates in so many areas of the world today. 
And what it's doing is it's trying to appeal to your desire for intimacy, corrupt the desire for intimacy, and deceive you, pull you away from the truth, and blind you to the prophetic vision of what the Lord's doing right now. Let me put it this way. I think we're in a moment where so many areas within the world today, and unfortunately even within the church, that Jezebel spirit operates, and it's why so many people are confused as to the hour that they are living in. They have no direction for their life. They're intimidated by the now of what's happening around us, rather than by being captivated by eternity and what the Father's saying and doing. And so the problem is when we are susceptible to this thing, our prophetic vision dies inside of us or becomes numb and we're blinded to it, And then what happens is we become ineffective. And so now you get the church looking around, trying to figure out what to do, and they've actually unintentionally or or without realizing they've disconnected themselves from the narrative of heaven and the dream of God. And they get caught up and wrapped in themselves and what's happening now, and that's where fear and panic and all these things happen. And that's when suddenly the voice of man begins to speak louder than the, the prophetic voice of the Holy Spirit in the church. It's why the church just flips and flops as, you know, whatever society dictates and tells us to do, we just move with that and we just adjust. And I think the Lord is inviting us back and He's saying, if you will yield to me, allow me to deal with the heart of the church, your heart, every single individual, let Him deal with your heart and bring you to a place of true intimacy with the Lord. Then He will, it says here that, you know, He gave Jezebel time to repent but he's actually going to throw her and all those who are continuing to engage with her on the bed of sickness. In fact, it even says, I will strike her children dead, meaning the offspring and the the fruit and the, the, the product of that spirit will come to an end. But then he says this, he says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart And I will give to each of you according to your works. Do you see the intimacy, the purity of intimacy? He's saying, I am the Lord. I am the God who knows your mind and your heart, who knows you intimately and personally and and in detail. And he says, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, this is verse 24, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. This is intense. I don't have the time to unpack this thoroughly, but I I promise you I'm going to wrap this together and and get you excited. Uh, The one who conquers, listen to this, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. See, if you read this letter and you understand what he's saying, he's saying if you will let me deal with your heart, if you'll let me remove these other influences that are trying to influence your heart, that are trying to influence your vision, that are trying to dictate to you the direction in which we will go and live as a people, the response in which we will have to the things of this earth, all these voices and influences, if you will let me deal with those things, silence those things, if you'll yield to my voice, He says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority to the nations. Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the nations, is inviting his bride to co-labor with him in this hour to see the kingdom of God established on the earth, to be the gateway, to be the house of God, the dwelling place, like we read in Genesis 28. What he's saying is, if you will rest on me, I am the rock, I am the pillar, 
If you will rest on me, then you will partner and collaborate with me in the dwelling place of God, where God can dwell with man, where true intimacy between man and God can continually grow for all of eternity. And in that place, angels will ascend and descend upon the Son of Man who you're married to, and you're connected to, you're one with Him. And so now, ministering angels are ascending and descending, partnering with mankind for the kingdom of heaven. And the great shepherd of the nations is inviting his bride to have authority over the nations. Now, if you, if you know your Bible, you'll know that this scripture where he says, I'll give authority over nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. He's referring to Psalms 2. And we'll go back to Psalm 2 now and read this. But he's referring to that where the Father actually says that my son's going to shepherd the nations. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. He's gonna, the rebellion will be broken like shattering pots, clay pots. And then Jesus says here, he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. He quotes it. And then he says, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. In other words, he's saying, you're going to come with me and do what I've received from the Father, and we're going to do it together on the earth. But he's saying, I need you to make sure that your intimacy is pure with me. That you are resting on the rock. That you are resting on the pillar. And that you are not swayed and taken by the spirits of this age. And then he says, I love this. And I will give him the morning star. See, who's the morning star? Jesus is the morning star. In 2 Peter, it talks about the morning star uh, rising and shining in our hearts. If Jesus is the morning star and He's going to give us Himself, the morning star also represents a new day. A new day in Christ. We are ministers of a new day. We are ministers of a new age. We are ministers of a new realm. We are ministers of a new kingdom. And it is not the kingdom of this world. And so I'm, 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 I'm trying to, to speak to your heart, to speak to your spirit today and say, we cannot afford to fall in love with this world. We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. If you go to, to uh, Psalm, Psalm chapter 2. Is everyone still with me? I know this is maybe a little bit prophetic, but I'll try and, and help it make sense more. Okay. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Oh, that sounds familiar. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let me put it this way. The nations have decided to get together and say, it's time for us to stop looking to God and His anointed. It's time for us to stop uh, being ruled by that. We're going to do this ourselves. They've decided to come away from the government of God on the earth and to form their own government and look at God's response. They, so these guys, against the Lord and against His anointed, they're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We want nothing to do with God. That's the response of the world right now. Leaders coming together. We want nothing to do with God. Psalm 2, it's here. It's been, this has been around. It's just coming again. The Lord's not shocked by what's happening around us, but we as the church need to make sure we know where we're positioned. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. That's my dad. <laughs> my heavenly dad. <laughs> I mean, my earthly dad's fury is pretty intense as well, trust me. But. 
He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, listen to this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's God's response to coronavirus and government things and looting and riots and all these things? The Lord, He is not shaken. He's not shocked by this. He says, let me tell you something. As for me, the creator of all, let me tell you my response to rebellion. Let me tell you my response to shaking. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is Jesus speaking. Ask of me, or the Father speaking to Jesus. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. If you study that, the the Hebrew word can also mean shepherd. You shall shepherd them, break them, govern them, lead them with a rod of iron. That's authority. That's unlimited true authority. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, the rebellion of the earth, the rebellion of the nations. I will, with my authority, unlimited authority, Jesus is saying, I will smash their rebellion into pieces. Now listen to this. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. <sighs> Listen to what the Lord's response to the rebellion of the nations in the end time. His response is not, you know what, we need to get my church figuring out the answers to solve these problems. He's not, God is not intimidated by the problems of this earth. It's all going to fall away. The only reason why the church is so wrapped up in all of this stuff is because we've fallen in love with it. And we're saying, Lord, come on, do something, fix what we love. And God's saying, as for me, the creator of this whole thing, as for me, my response to what's happening in these times, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Kiss the sun. (laughs) I don't know if you're catching this. The response of the end time church in the middle of the most crazy turmoil and just wild stuff going on. It's a group of people who look to the king who's been set on Zion on the holy hill and they kiss the sun. And they're looking at the nations and, the, and all the turmoil and the nonsense and they're saying, stop trying to figure it out and kiss the sun. It's all going to fall away. You're trying to save something that's broken and messed up anyway. Kiss the sun. Oh, well, I want to understand it and figure it out. Kiss the sun. Oh, we've got to be so careful that we've, we haven't become so proud and so arrogant that we think somehow we've got it. We've got the answers. We have, we've got the intellect. We've got the understanding. We've got the solutions. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. So that when the day comes, listen to what I'm saying, church. You know, in the, in the days of Thyatira, the devil was still figuring a few things out. So if you go and study back then, the debauchery and the, the, just the twistedness of society and the idolatry and the gods and all this kind of stuff, it was just in your face everywhere. The devil just threw it at them. And so it took the church a little bit of time to navigate that, but they came through strong. And that's why we see so many martyrs in the first thousand years of the church. But in the second thousand years, these last thousand years, Watch how the devil's adjusted his strategy a little bit. 
same ideas, but the manner in which he's done it now is actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to appeal to your desire. So now I'm not just going to make it legal and say, hey, if you want to trade, you know, you have to do this and this and this. Now he's going to say, hey, if you want to be successful, do this and this and this. Hey, if you want to be seen to be this, and if you want to have that, and have all the things, and this life, and look at the comfort and the luxury of appealing. What is he doing? It's a, it's a Jezebel spirit that's corrupting intimacy to steal prophetic vision. You see, because when you are living in the prophetic vision of eternity, you're really not concerned with the things of this natural temporal realm. You're continually looking as the dwelling place of God into the heavenlies where angels are ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, and you are partnering with God to see what His will, His kingdom established on the earth. And I want to say this, it's a kingdom of hearts. See, when the church understands this message, and again, I, I should probably, you know, I could spend three months just slowly going through this again and again. I'm, I'm throwing a lot on you. I understand that. But I pray that your spirit just catches something because if we understand the kingdom of God, it's a kingdom of hearts, it's not a kingdom of this world, then our response is to make Him Lord. And it has to start with your own heart. Kiss the Son. You are Lord. You're the King set on Zion, on the holy hill. It's your kingdom. And I want to become a gateway to heaven. I want to become the house of God, the dwelling place of God. And if I stay in that place, resting on the rock of who Jesus is, then I can begin to minister like Jesus did on the earth. And that's where I want to jump to Luke 4.18. How many of you have read on the website or you've heard or you know the vision of 24-7 church? If you haven't, you need to go and look at it. Part of our vision statement is that we want to see Isaiah 61, 1-3 fulfilled in the lives of individuals, families, and the nations. In Luke 4, Verse 18, Jesus, what's happened is he's in Nazareth. He opens the scroll in the synagogue. Um, let's read from verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now he's going to quote Isaiah 61. This is Jesus. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We've come to this point, this time in history. This window where the Lord is awakening the church and the bride once again as a generation that will walk in the Luke 4, 18 mandate and anointing. It's the, the anointing of Jesus. It's the anointing of the Messiah that's been given to the church through the Holy Spirit. And I've been so encouraged as the Lord's been stirring these things on my heart. And then I begin to just listen to a few things that are happening all around the world. And, and everybody's coming around to this conversation of the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And He's anointed me to do the works of the kingdom. What are the works of the kingdom? Well, Isaiah 61, we see that. And Jesus quotes this, and then he says, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, Jesus wasn't going to the, the synagogue in Nazareth or wherever to say this, uh, to make a point that I'm the man, I've arrived. 
See, if you understand what God was doing and what Jesus was doing in this moment, He's saying today, the master plan, the dream of God is going to be fulfilled in me. And He's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to birth a whole movement of people who are going to walk in this anointing. I am the prototype of what's to come. Let me put it this way. The day is coming where thousands and millions of born-again sons and daughters of God are going to walk in Luke 4.18. And this is how we're going to see the earth turned upside down. And right now, God's actually moving on sons and daughters. He's moving on men and women of God who have set themselves apart. And that anointing of Jesus, when you consecrate yourself to that purity of intimacy, the anointing of Jesus is coming upon the people of God, those who will set themselves apart, holy. Those who will give themselves, yield to Him. Not try and earn it, we sang about it today. But come into Christ, take refuge in Him. That's what it says at the end of Psalm 2. Those who take refuge in Him. So if we take refuge in Christ, we come into that anointing of His Spirit. And we begin to demonstrate the kingdom that He rules and reigns over. And when you read Isaiah 61, it doesn't seem to be too much about trying to give the world a better day. It has to do with bringing them back to their purpose. You see, because if, if the kingdom of God was about a better day, it's a temporary kingdom. But the kingdom of God is about eternity with the bridegroom. It's about a priesthood of believers who are devoted to Him. Do you know that in Ezekiel 44, yo, I'm throwing a lot of different things at you. You're going to have to listen to this one a few times. So am I. Ezekiel 44 talks about two priesthoods. One of them has denied the Lord and then come back to Him, but they are given the outer courts of the temple and they serve in the outer courts. But there's another group, another priesthood that are, are invited into the holy place. But there's requirements when they come in. They actually have to change their clothes. Do you know that it even says, this is in the context of the Old Covenant, that they, they come in, they have to change their clothes, put on new clothes for the glory, and when they come out, they cannot come out in those clothes in the Old Testament because the glory that was on them, they couldn't come out in those clothes. They had to change again. But you see, we've come into the New Covenant priesthood We've been clothed by the Lamb, but this time He's sending us out. And this time He's sending us out as a people of the holy place, a people who are pure and intimate because of the clothing we've received from the Lamb. And now the glory that's upon the church is actually for the nations. For what purpose? To bring them to the holy place. So we are invited as the bride of Christ to come into the person of who Jesus is as his bride, to live for his glory, and to begin to move in the anointing of Jesus and not the anointings of men. And that is what will mark this new era. It is not going to be just separate anointings of men and women. It is going to be the anointing of Jesus coming upon the church. 
And I say to you, in the same way that I've said, don't fall in love with this world, fall in love with the bridegroom, I want to say to you, don't fall in love with your assignments. Don't fall in love with your call. Don't fall in love with your gifting. Fall in love with Jesus. Because we have, we have been deceived if we think the kingdom of God has to do with us being somewhere or the kingdom of God has to do with the king. And he will establish his kingdom. He's the king. I serve his kingdom. My job is to yield. My job is to obey. My job is to follow. My duty in him is to be in love, is to be a bride. He wants to rule and reign with us. We are not there to dictate what the kingdom is. We are there to serve it. I want to just hit one last thing because you know me. Something about that Jezebel spirit when it hits, um, it tries to corrupt intimacy, it often displays itself in a, in a pseudo form of genuineness and intimacy and love. And that's how the enemy, how the enemy uh, deceives and how he appeals to the desire of man's heart. And I'm telling you now that the anointing of Jesus will expose every pseudo-spiritual spirit or, or, or move in the earth and in the church. And it will become really difficult and uncomfortable to be a part of the bride of Christ in purity and operate in any pseudo-demonic thing. And I'm not saying that because I think any of you are are operating in that. I'm I'm encouraging us to say God is going to purify His bride in Him. And so what we'll begin to see is the most beautiful, sincere, humble, honoring group of people who will demonstrate power like never seen before in history. See, there, there is there's this understanding that needs to come to the bride that power is the expression of purity. And again, there is only one who's pure, and his name is Jesus, which is why he's invited us to come into him. So we're going to see this Luke 4.18 anointing on the people of God because we are resting on the rock, resting on the revelation of Jesus, We are living in encounter with the house of God, the gateway to heaven. We understand like the church in Thyatira that God is dealing with the hearts of the church, purifying us from the nonsense around us. We cannot fall in love with this world. There is coming a time now in history where we will stand. And so we are not running to the bridegroom to get him to fix something that we love more than him. We are running to the bridegroom, falling in love with him and saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What would you have me do, king? And from that place is is coming this beautiful priesthood who are true priests of the intimate place, the secret place, the holy place, the covenant place. And they're clothed in Christ. And now he's beginning to commission and send this priesthood, this kingdom of priests. It's not a kingdom of kings. It's a kingdom of priests that he's sending out to arise and shine so that in the midst of deep darkness, all the world would behold the bride that's for His glory, arising out of darkness, radiating with His glory, shining the light of the gospel, and seeing many lost sons and daughters come to know their Father until we see Him face to face. This is the mandate of the church. This is the focus of who we are as the church. If you understand the word focus, it has to do with the center of our activity and our interest. And in order to focus, you have to adapt to the prevailing light.
so that you can see clearly and have clear visual definition. So the church needs to adapt to the prevailing light of Christ, focus our activity and our interest in one place, and it's the King who sat on Zion, the holy hill. Wonderful. If you're in your homes, I want to ask you to stand with me. If you're in the room, you can stand as well. I share this word with you today knowing that it's a pretty prophetic word and maybe a little bit like, wow, it's a lot. That's okay. I, I'm, I don't expect everybody to just catch it now. But I want to ask you to sit on this to let the Lord minister this to you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would touch every single heart, every single spirit right now. I thank you for the purity of Jesus that's being ministered to his church. And at this time that we're alive, Lord, that our heart response to you is one of yielded, laid down lovers, the bride of the bridegroom. Lord, we repent today if we have fallen in love with this world. We repent and we come back to the truth. We yield to you. You are the desire of our hearts, Lord. You are our intimate lover. You're the one who knows us. And we know you, and so we come into that place, Lord, and we say, make us the priesthood, a new covenant priesthood that you paid for, a bride for your glory that will minister the gospel with such power and purity, a bride that will arise and shine in the midst of deep darkness. And we thank you for your response, Lord. You are the king. You are the king of kings. And we love you, and we serve you, and we honor you, and we yield to you. And so I just release the grace of God on 24-7 right now. Grace to believe. Grace to receive. Grace to understand grace to be transformed, grace to stand when others are, are being shaken and falling, grace to look and behold, grace not to be distracted, grace to love. So I release great grace upon the church today. And I thank you for your anointing that's on your word. And Lord, I, if there's anything I've said today that is not in your heart, let it fall on deaf ears. But all that is of your word, Lord, let it cut to the heart. Let it produce good fruit in us and transform us to be like you. Lord, we love you, we bless you, we honor you, we thank you for your beautiful presence that's been in this room and been in our homes this morning and how you have led us to that deep place of longing and aching for more of you. And I pray that that just only increases. Let the desire for Jesus intensify in the church. Let the ache and the longing for the bridegroom intensify in our hearts, Lord, where we would get to a place where we no longer even have words, but all we have is aches and longings and groanings for our, our lover, our bridegroom, to return. Lord, one day we will look you in the eyes, our beautiful bridegroom king. We are living for that day. And so, Lord, we just say, make us a holy example in this hour. Make us a holy example, a holy demonstration. Make us lovers. We want to love like you love, Lord. So I honor you today. Lord, I bless every single person on this call and on YouTube who watch this later and everyone in this room. I bless them in the name of Jesus. They are blessed, Lord, because we have your word and we have your spirit. Father, I release the breath of God upon every single person that watches this. The breath of God. Let them feel the tangible breath of God upon their spirits, upon their bodies. I thank you that because of the word, because of the gospel preached, that if there's any healing needed, whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, that they would come into alignment with the truth, that they would come into the kingdom. Lord, that you would manifest signs and wonders as a confirmation of your word. Not just for us, Lord, but through us to others. 
So we thank you. Lord, keep us burning. Make us burning ones. We love you and we honor you. We worship you, King of glory. Have your way in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for this beautiful time together. We're excited for all that you're doing in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I bless you, 24-7 Church. I, I do pray. You might have to listen to it again. I know I'm going to have to go back um, and listen to this. But uh, I bless you, and I pray that as you do that, you would encounter Jesus in such a deep way. I just release encounters and dreams and visions over you that even tonight and today and through this week, uh, that God's just going to be so real. He's going to manifest Himself to you. If you are going through difficult situations and circumstances, I release grace to follow Jesus. I know that, um, you know, often our first thing is we want to just release the, the, you know, make it better. No, I want to say make it God. And so <laughs> I just release grace to follow Jesus in the midst of, of difficulties, but that you would manifest Christ and that you would see His glory upon your situation as well. Thank you for joining us today. You're all awesome and beautiful and incredible. We're looking forward to seeing you on all the midweek uh, stuff that was announced. And, uh, and if you need to come for counseling or prayer, contact some of the leaders and the, the pages so we can organize those times. And the Gala Coffee will be open from Tuesday. We love you. Have an awesome day. Bless you. And we'll see you guys soon.